our great God, you are the potter and we are the clay and we recognize that your formation of us, Lord, takes so many different shapes over the course of our lives. You shape us, of course, through your word, uh, through prayer, through fellowship with brothers and sisters, but you also shape us, Lord, through the things that we experience in our lives, uh, both the good and the bad. And Father, this morning we are praying for ongoing spiritual formation uh, in our church, in the body of Christ. And we pray that as we open Philippians one more time, that this would be just a small piece of that greater formation, that your spirit would draw our hearts and minds uh, to the things that you would have us pay attention to this morning, and that you would do that work of formation amongst us. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty, powerful name. Amen. A little over 10 years ago, a group of researchers recorded the cries of 60 different infants. Infants who had been born to both French parents and to German parents. And the cries of all 60 of the babies were recorded during the very first week of their life. So they were just infants. The amazing conclusion of the study, listen to this, was that newborn infants cry with a specific accent. It's true. So the cries born, uh, the cries of the infants who were born to French parents had a noticeable sort of upward lilt at the end of their cry, and the cries of the infants born to German parents had a noticeable intensity at the start of the cry, and then a sharp drop-off at the end. And the clear implication of the study is that babies, even while they are still inside the mother's womb, learn the voice and they learn the accent of their mother, and then they copy it in their crying once they're born. Quite an amazing study, isn't it? I remember that with all three of our kids, and they're there on the screen, our little cherubs, uh, not so much at the cherub stage anymore, uh, but I, I remember when they were really little, um, it never ceased to amaze me. I always just found it kind of fun. It, it was amazing as I witnessed uh, them learning to speak. And the amazing thing with little babies is that they, they, they learn language by catching it, Right? by copying it. You don't have to teach it very much. Uh, they just hear somebody speaking and they catch the language and then they start trying it out. But that study of infants shows us that the whole process of copying speech begins much earlier than we may have thought in times past. It starts even inside the womb. It's an amazing thing. Well, friends, all of this serves as an illustration for us as believers. How do you and I learn the language of prayer? How do we learn what to prioritize in our praying? None of us automatically knows the language or the priorities of prayer. To learn the language of prayer, to learn right priorities in prayer, to pray in a way that will honor God, it will mean that we must be immersed in God's language. 
in God's speech, tethered to God and his speech. And that speech of our parents is found in Scripture. By Scripture, we learn to pray. Well, this morning's passage in Philippians is a great help to us in this regard. In these verses, we have one of Paul's prayers written under the inspiration of Almighty God. Here we have a great model of prayer. This prayer gives us the language of prayer. This prayer orients us to what we should be prioritizing in our praying. It shows us the kind of language in prayer and thought in prayer that brings glory to God. So let's venture into the text. I hope you have a Bible this morning. If not, we have pew Bibles. Let's venture into the text beginning this morning at Philippians 1 verse 9. The passage was read for us a little earlier. Now, just as a very brief reminder concerning last Sunday's preaching text, which was verses 3 through 8, there we had Paul expressing his thanksgiving. His thanksgiving for the Philippian believers and for the partnership in the gospel that they all shared together, Paul with the believers. In verse 4 of that passage, Paul had mentioned praying, praying for the Philippians. And now as we get to verse 9, Paul gets a little more specific on exactly what he's been praying for. He says, and it is my prayer, Philippian believers, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Now again, friends, just notice what Paul prioritizes here in his prayer. He doesn't prioritize the physical health of the Philippians, nor does he prioritize the material prosperity of the Philippians, nor is it the physical safety of the Philippians that he puts first here. Those are all certainly legitimate things to pray about. But Paul doesn't make any of those things a priority as he prays here for the Philippians. Rather, his priority in prayer for this congregation of believers is that they would grow and increase ongoingly in love. Notice that very carefully. Love. Now, I would argue that the word love has pretty much been gutted of any meaningful sense due to overuse and due to the abuse of the word. So let's try and pinpoint this a little bit here. First of all, what we notice in this text is that Paul does not say, it's my prayer that your love for God may abound more and more. And nor does he say here, it's my prayer that your love for one another may abound more and more. Paul just says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So he leaves love unspecified and he leaves it unqualified. And I would argue that Paul does this on purpose. That is, he doesn't define or limit the direction of the love that he has in mind because he wants us to be thinking in both directions. Love for God and love for one another. Paul's desire is that both kinds of love or both directions of love would abound more and more in the church. 
Now, of course, love has defined contours in Scripture, doesn't it? For example, we can go to 1 Corinthians 13 to understand the shape of love that honors God. But the place that we most explicitly see love in its fullest dimensions is where? It's at the cross of Jesus Christ, where God's Son dies for the welfare and the benefit of his enemies. 1 John 3.16, how do we know love? By this we know love, says John, that he laid down his life for us. We see God's greatest demonstration of love at the cross, which means that love, biblically speaking, love, biblically speaking, involves what? It involves the giving of self for the benefit of others. Love is costly. Amen? Love is self-sacrificial so that another person or other persons can gain well-being. And for love to be operating tangibly amongst us as the church, for it to be operating tangibly in our midst as believers in Jesus, this is, of course, monumentally important. After all, love appears at the head of the list in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And in 1 Corinthians 13.13, love is greater than faith and love is greater than hope. And in John 13.35, Jesus says that really the defining mark of his disciples is what? Love. Jesus puts primacy on us loving one another. So love is of paramount importance in the Christian community. Paul's pastoral priority in prayer over the Philippian congregation is that they would grow and abound more and more increasingly and ongoingly in love. Now, in verse 6, Paul had talked about the fact that God had already begun a good work in the Philippians. Right? Remember that from last week. Which means, doesn't it, that love already existed in their midst. So it's not like Paul is saying here, well, my prayer is that God would create love in you because Philippians right now, it's not currently manifesting itself. No, love was already operative in the Philippians. Paul here is praying, his pastoral prayer, is that the love that was already present would grow and would increase and would blossom. Now, friends, there is love already here in our congregation. Would you agree? There's love already here, but I think most of us would agree that we have places to go in the area of love, just like the Philippians did. And in fact, it's the case that we will always have places to go in this area of active love. Love for one another and love for God 
can always progress, it can always grow, and it can always blossom further. And so an ongoing priority in our prayers over our congregation here at Snowden should be precisely the same as Paul's prayer here, that the love in the Snowden congregation would abound more and more. Now let me ask you this question, and I ask it of myself too. When was the last time that we prayed that way? We have a lot we can learn from Paul's priorities in prayer. Now what I want you to pay attention to here in verse 9 is that Paul harnesses love, or he weds love to a couple of things here. Namely, he weds or he harnesses love to knowledge and all discernment. Notice this very carefully. What does he say? He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So then, this love that Paul has in mind now gets further definition. The love he has in mind is a love with knowledge or a love with discernment, a love with both. That is to say that this is a love, listen, this is a love that is clear-sighted. This is a love that is sober-minded. This is a love that has insight about it. Again, this love, it's not flabby, it's not L-U-V, sentimental love, this love has teeth to it. It has contours about it. The specific contours here are knowledge and discernment. Now the question is, what kind of knowledge is Paul talking about here in this passage? Are we to think of a general sort of knowledge, a broad sort of knowledge that would include knowing things about everything and anything? So knowledge of economics, Uh, knowledge of microbiology, knowledge of art history. The answer, I think, is that that's not what Paul has in mind here. The specific Greek word that he uses here that we translate into English as the word knowledge is always found in contexts where knowledge of God and knowledge of spiritual things are the concern. So when Paul uses this word knowledge here, he's talking about knowledge of God, theological knowledge, insight into God's word and insight into the ways of God. The love that he wants to increase in the Philippians is love that is harnessed to, wedded to the knowledge of God and the works of God and the ways of God. And Paul also harnesses love to all discernment here. Notice that, all discernment. With the word discernment, Paul is now touching on the practical outworking or the practical application of the theological knowledge. So discernment here is about judging what is the best moral path based on the knowledge of God that we have, what is the best moral path? And then taking that path in obedience to God. Love, friends, is going to issue in taking action, right? 
discerning the best path and taking it. Now, it's really instructive for us, this verse in God's Word. Again, we see here that the Apostle Paul has no problem, he has no problem intertwining love with knowledge and discernment. And the lessons that we can draw out of this, I think, are a couple of lessons. First of all, what God is showing us here is that true God-glorifying love will not be a mindless love. Rather, it will be a knowledgeable love that is immersed deeply in relationship with God. It will be a love that is panting hard after God and is learning God, learning His Word, learning His ways. Love with knowledge. This is not a flabby, nebulous, sentimental sort of love. But then on the flip side, we might also draw out the point that just as much as love needs to operate with knowledge... Knowledge also needs to operate with love. In other words, Paul is certainly not interested here in theological knowledge that fails to issue in active love. Knowledge of God must produce active love. The two things have to go together. Well, to summarize everything here, we might say, we might put it like this, that love must be knowledgeable And knowledge must issue in love. Paul prays, doesn't he? He's praying here. He's praying for this specific kind of knowledgeable, discerning love to increase in the church, in believers. And the fact that he prays that God would make this happen implies very strongly that we need God's help here. Each and every one of us needs God's help. Paul is praying for this. Left to ourselves, we cannot produce the kind of knowledgeable, discerning love that Paul is after here. Are you with me? In an ultimate sense, God has to do this. Which is why Paul prays for it to happen. I think we would be wise to commit ourselves to be praying Paul's prayer over our church. I hope that you will join me in doing this. I committed to do this this week. Now, when we get to verse 10, look at your Bible with me. When we get to verse 10, Paul talks about the two purposes now, the two purposes of having this knowledgeable love, the two reasons for having it. The first and immediate reason to gain this knowledgeable, discerning love is so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. Having such knowledgeable, discerning love will cause believers to have the ability to approve what is excellent. Now notice the word approve. Let's talk about this just for a minute. Now if you're like me, when you make a major purchase, like say you go and you want to buy a computer at Best Buy, or maybe not at Best Buy, but wherever you're buying your computer. You do your homework a little before you spend your money, right? Hopefully. 
you look at several models, you compare, contrast the features, the cost, the durability of the machine, etc. So you examine the products, you evaluate the products, and then you make a choice. You approve one computer over other competitors. The word approve here in verse 10 has the same sense. The original Greek word has to do with examining, evaluating, and then finally approving something. And when Paul prays here, what he's praying is that believers are going to come to this place in their lives where they evaluate, approve, decide on what is excellent. That is, he's praying for ability in believers to evaluate and approve that which is superior in quality, that which is surpassing in quality, that which is most excellent when it is contrasted with other options. So this is about approving or choosing what is best, or approving and choosing what is essential, what really matters when all the facts have come in. What Paul desires for the Philippians here is simply this, friends, that at any given moment in their walk with God in this life, that they will have the ability to discern and choose and approve what God's best is, what his way is, and embrace that way of God and act on that way of God. And according to the passage, we need to have operating in us the kind of growing love that he described in verse 9 if we would see what is excellent and choose it. In other words, approving what is excellent is not innate in us. It does not come naturally to us. So Paul prays for it here as an outgrowth of the abounding love of verse 9. Now, I think many of you would agree that in this life, it is often difficult for us to make distinctions between what is permissible and what is preferable. Right? It's often difficult. It's not always easy for us to see clearly what is good and what is less than good, what is essential, and what is perhaps more on the periphery. It's not always easy, because we are fallen creatures who are not perfect, and we live in a fallen world. This is why we need, today, we need the knowledgeable, abounding love of verse 9 to be growing up in us. Like Paul, we need to be praying this way for one another. Make it a daily prayer for one another. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that, friend, you may approve what is excellent. And then Paul gives us the second more ultimate reason why he desires abounding, knowledgeable love to be growing and flourishing and increasing in believers. And that reason is that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Wow. 
So having this abounding, knowledgeable, discerning love that Paul encourages here will cause us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now the word pure here is about moral purity. This word has to do with being something that is unmixed, that is unalloyed. And it has to do with one's motives, being unmixed in one's motives, unalloyed in one's motives. It describes a person who is sincere and who is transparently genuine, full of integrity with nothing to hide. When the love that Paul described in verse 9 grows up in a person and blossoms in a person, it has the effect of bringing that person to this place of moral purity before God. And then the word blameless in this verse describes the person who does not cause others to stumble. The person who does not cause another to stumble in his or her pilgrimage of faith. The growing love of verse 9 brings the believer also to this place of blamelessness, not causing others to stumble. And for us to see just how important it is that the love that Paul is praying for is real in us, that it is growing in us, blossoming out into purity and blamelessness, to see how important it is that all this is happening, all we have to do is look at this phrase here, for the day of Christ. Friend, did you know that each and every one of us, doesn't matter who you are, we are all moving toward that climactic moment of history when we will meet the risen Jesus face to face. For us to be fit to meet Him, it is essential that the knowledgeable, discerning love that Paul is praying for here, which issues in purity and blamelessness, that this is operative in us. It is essential. How crucial it is for us to take this very seriously and be praying this prayer over our church. Well, before we go to our last verse, to verse 11, just notice, let's just take a step step back for a minute, just notice what Paul is doing here in these verses. He's doing nothing less, friends, than praying in earnest for the spiritual formation of the church. He's praying for the total sanctification of the church, that the church would be made holy in love. Again, the question is, how often do we pray specifically for the spiritual formation of of our brothers and sisters. My experience in evangelical settings like ours is that the vast majority of our petitions in prayer are for physical healing and for material needs or perhaps for God's help in certain circumstances. All good things to pray about. Don't get me wrong. All good things to pray about for sure. But how often do we pray that love would abound more and more in our midst? 
with knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Can you see, friend, how we need the voice of God in Scripture if we would learn God's priorities for prayer? Can you see that? I read a prayer like Paul's here and it just sounds so different than many of my usual prayers. I will admit. And so my prayer is that each of us would develop a hunger for prayer that is both informed by the revelation that God has given us and tethered to that revelation. Tethered to it. Let's go finally to verse 11. Paul continues to pray for the church. Now he prays his desire that on that day of Christ that he's just talked about, on that day of Christ, that believers would be filled filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, probably we should understand here the fruit of righteousness. How do we understand that phrase? We should understand it as right conduct that results from being made righteous by God. In other words, the fruit of righteousness here refers to outer manifestations of the renewed inner nature. He's talking to people who are born again here, who have been regenerated by the Spirit. This refers to outer manifestations of the renewed inner nature. Good works that demonstrate, good works that give evidence that one has truly been made righteous by God. Justification. And let's just remind ourselves of the flow of this whole passage. This is so important. So to, to borrow Alec Matir's imagery here, we started at verse 9 with what we might call the seed, which was love. And the seed connects organically and directly, doesn't it, with what grows out of it. From the seed of love, we get the blossoms of knowledge and discernment, and then the blossoms of approving what is excellent and purity and blamelessness. And finally, in verse 11, we come to the fruit that is growing on the plant, which is the fruit of righteousness, God-glorifying ethical conduct that stems organically all the way back to the seed of love that we have in verse 9. Paul says here in verse 11 that the fruit of righteousness comes how? Through Jesus Christ. In other words, the crop, the final fruit on the plant, which is God-honoring ethical conduct in a person's life, this fruit is given only by Jesus Christ. It is produced in me and in you only by the Lord. To quote Dennis Johnson here, he's got a great quote. He says, Jesus is the conduit through whom God pours overflowing love. Let me read that again. Jesus is the conduit through whom God pours overflowing love with discerning wisdom into our thirsty hearts. Jesus is the wellspring of life the wellspring of life from whom we are absorbing nutrients that enable us to bear the fruit of peaceable righteousness. Friends, whenever 
God-glorifying, ethical conduct is evidenced in us, it is no reason for us to boast as if we were responsible. All praise must go to Jesus through whom our right conduct has come. And this is precisely where Paul goes at the end of the verse where he says that all of this is what? To the glory and praise of God. Whatever good is in us, Whatever beauty there is in our words and in our thoughts and in our ways, God is to be credited for it. And He is to be glorified and magnified for it. Amen? Well, wow. What a prayer this is for the spiritual formation of the church. I think it bears repeated meditation and it bears careful meditation. And we should be using this prayer as a blueprint for our own praying over the church. As John Kitchen has suggested in his commentary on Philippians, he says, quote, Take time to turn Paul's prayer here into your prayer for your family and the people who make up the local fellowship of believers where you worship and serve. Well, friends, because I believe, I've always been a believer in participatory worship, I want to ask us to do this even right now, would all of the people who are seated on both my left and my right, please stand up from the first rows all the way back to the back window, people on the left and the right, yes, that's you, stand up, and I want you to face inward toward the middle aisle, we want to pray uh, Paul's prayer over the people who are seated in the middle aisle, so would you repeat after me in prayer? For the people in the middle, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. And now would all those in the center aisle please stand. And could we have half of you turn to my right and the other half turn to the left? And let's pray that same prayer over the outer aisles. So here it is. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. With knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to encourage you to memorize this passage 
pray the words of it, make your own prayer up based on these words, and keep praying it over uh, the congregation here. It's known in other local churches in Montreal as well. Amen. We're going to take time now from some silent meditation on the word, uh, and then I'll close us with the benediction. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? The benediction is a prayer. May the Lord establish you as a holy people to himself. May he hover over you as an eagle over its young, who spreads its wings and catches them and carries them on its pinions. To the end that you who have put your hope in Christ Jesus would be to the praise of his glory. Amen. You're dismissed.